You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Collectively viewed over six million times, 
and he was a co-host on two podcasts. Please welcome Clint Smith. Saeed Jones. I learned about this poet for the first time when my Mosaic magazine showed up in the mail. At the time, he was a literary editor of BuzzFeed. When people say an emerging literary voice, we already know that author may have been writing for years, perhaps unread and underknown, but when he surfaces and the poet becomes a memorist, something else forms that becomes so extraordinary, we often don't have a language for it. But I'm going to try tonight. <laughs> There's nothing quite like a poet who finds his way to prose. It's a different experience. You see, you can read all about Zayed's accomplishments, including his poetry book, Prelude to Bruce, his pushcart pride and fellowships, and all the accolades. Hard earned for sure. But let's talk about the book, this book, the work, the title alone makes you think how we fight for our lives. It's at once a testament to being young, bookish, black, gay, and from the South. That alone is a fight for one's life, isn't it? <laughs> the different ways this book has been described, a rhapsody, a blues song, a fight from within and beyond the body landscape, the price paid for living in secrets, and the shame that unfolds in its wake, the sexual awakening and curiosity of someone both loving and repulsed by his truth, the undertaking of a life of loving and unloving. Through it all, we learn that Saeed, in his crucial work, in his words, has damn good reason for keeping up his fists. <laughs> Through it all, there is an incredible generosity in this book that lets the author bury his soul in the truth telling, and we're here for it, accepting the wrong right up, accepting the wrong right inside the joy of it, and cheering him for the audacity of getting it right for all of us to be schooled and to learn. More than anything, we celebrate this all the time because through it all, through the loss of a loving mother, through a riveting examination of race and queerness, grief and vulnerability, he's still here. And that, that alone is worth an applause. <laughs> Uh, the poem and a short version of the first chapter that opens the book. 
pretty simple. Um, and, and then the two of us are going to talk, um, and we've already been at dinner, we've had one glass of wine, okay, I had two glasses of wine, we've had one glass of wine, um, and have a great conversation, and if you have some questions, we can dance that dance too. Okay. How we fight for our lives, prelude, elegy with grown folks music. I want to be your lover comes on the kitchen radio, and briefly, your mother isn't your mother. Just like if the falsetto is just right, a black man in black lace panties isn't a faggot, but a prince, a prodigy. And the woman with your hometown between her hips shimmies past the eviction notice burning on the counter, and her body moves like she never even birthed you. The voice on the radio pleads, I want to be the only one that makes you come running. Some songs take women places men cannot follow. Spinning, she looks at but doesn't see you. Spinning, she sings lyrics too fast for you to pursue. Spinning, she doesn't have time for questions like, what is this nasty song? And where did she learn to dance like that? And why? And who is this high-pitched bitch of a man who can sing like a woman and turn your mother not even into your mother but a girl? Not even a girl, a box-braided black girl, a fast girl, a chick, a vanity six, and how far away she is from you, right here in the same living room, dancing with the song's hook in her throat. And you hate the voice coming through the radio because another sissy has snatched your dreams and run off with them. And because you are young and don't know the difference between abandoned and alone, just like your mother's heart won't know the difference between beat and attack. She will be dead in a decade. And maybe you already know what you are losing without knowing how. But you're just a boy for now. And your mother is just a woman, just a girl. Body swaying, fingers snapping, and snakes in her blood. Chapter 1, May 1998, Louisville, Texas. The waxy-faced weatherman on Channel 8 said we had been above 90 degrees for 10 days in a row. Day after day of my t-shirt sticking to the sweat on my lower back, the smell of insect repellent gone slick with sunscreen, the air droning with the hum of cicadas, dead yellow grass cracking under every footstep, asphalt bubbling on the roads. It didn't occur to me to be nervous about the occasional wall of white smoke on the horizon that summer. Everything already looked like it was scorched, dead, or well on its way. I was 12, and I had just finished the sixth grade. Most days, Mom headed to her job at the airport. I would stay inside our apartment stationed by the window. Cody and his younger brother Sam, two white boys who lived a few apartment buildings over from us, were always playing catch in the parking lot, though I never joined them. I wasn't good at throwing the ball, and it was too hot for me to go out there and pretend. When I wasn't at my perch acting like I wasn't watching them, I would flip through Mom's old paperback books. Today, I picked up a worn copy of Another Country by James Baldwin, 
sat down cross-legged on the floor and started reading. A sad man walks through the streets of New York City late one winter night. He goes into a jazz club looking for someone or something, but doesn't say why. Minutes pulled into hours. Black people sleeping with white people. Men kissing men, then kissing women, then kissing men again. Every few pages, I would look up from the book and peek at our apartment's front door. Mom wasn't home from work yet, and it felt like I would get in trouble if she saw me reading this book. I went into my bedroom with our copper spaniel, Kingsley, trailing behind me, and I closed the door. The novel turned me on. I didn't know books were capable of anything like this. Until now, I had liked reading, but it was just something you did. A good thing, like drinking water on a hot day, but nothing special. Holding another country in my hand, though, I felt that the book was actually holding me. Sad, sexy, and reeking of jazz, the story had its arm around my waist. I could walk right into the scene, take off my clothes, and join one of the couples in bed. I could taste their tongues. About a third of the way into the novel, I found a Polaroid tucked between the pages like a bookmark. It was a picture of a man I had never seen before. He didn't resemble anyone in my family, but for all I knew, he could have been a distant cousin or uncle. He was leaning against a sedan with his arms crossed and an odd smile on his face, as if the person holding the camera had just told an inside joke. Or maybe this man was doing the talent. The smile felt intimate, inappropriate, like a hand sliding down where it should not be. Someone had written Jackson, Mississippi, 1982 on the back. I decided I didn't like the man in the photo. The dirt on his shoes irritated me. And the longer I looked at his smile, the more I felt like he was looking directly at me. Not at the camera in 1982, but at me, 16 years later. He grinned like he knew something about me. A punchline I hadn't figured out yet. When Mom came home from work, she headed straight into the kitchen to pour herself a glass of water from the Ozark jug. That was part of her routine. She would drink the entire glass right there in front of the fridge. Then she'd walk into her room and stare at the TV for a little bit, listening to the weatherman deliver a forecast. More heat! She already knew. Mom was beautiful, but always on the edge of exhaustion. When she was in her 20s, she had worked briefly as a fashion model. Sometimes she'd let me look at pictures of her from those days, hair in box braids, her light frame draped in gowns her sister had designed, posing on runways. Even a long day of work could not deny her the colors her black hair flashed, like raven feathers when the light hit it just so. I was proud of her beauty, my first diva. Even as my body felt mangled by puberty, I took consolation in the fact that I came from a woman like her. A woman who read three newspapers every day, who could make everyone in a room light up with laughter, who would tuck notes into my lunchbox daily, signing off, I love you more than the air I breathe. 
After working at the airport all day, Mom was too tired for any of my questions, so I waited until she had a cigarette. After a smoke, she would be ready to talk. She saw the Polaroid in my hand when I walked up to her. I've been wondering what happened to that. She held the photo in her hand gently, as if it would crumble to dust if she wasn't careful. Her face softened just a bit. Who is he? I asked. She looked out the window at the oak tree right outside the living room. She stared at it long and hard like she was waiting for some signal. I stared at the window with her, then arched one eyebrow. She sighed. A friend from school. We'd go on road trips together now and then. We went to Jackson once. She paused again, still looking at the tree. For a moment, it was quiet inside the apartment and out, like the heat was making the entire town hold its breath. <clears throat> then Cody and Sam started yelling at each other in the parking lot. Mom frowned and turned back to me. Not too long after that, he found out he was sick, and, and he killed himself. She was already walking back to the kitchen for more water, which was her way of saying that the conversation was over. It was too hot, the day too long. I wanted to see the man's picture again. He had looked healthy to me. He was young, early 20s. And what did being sick have to do with killing yourself? Sick with what? I called out, even as I felt bad for asking. I had stepped into someone else's house without their permission. But now that I was inside, I couldn't help looking around. AIDS she said. She breezed into her bedroom and closed the door. I could hear her open a drawer and turn the TV on. I tried to listen for the weatherman's predictions, but the volume was down too low. I went back into my room and pulled another country out from under my pillow. After reading and rereading the same paragraph several times, I put the book back down. AIDS, I thought. Shit. She hadn't even said her friend's name. Gay was not a word I could imagine actually hearing my mom say out loud. If I pictured her moving her lips, AIDS came out instead. But in the days following our conversation about the photograph, I could feel the word gay, or maybe the word's conspicuous absence, vibrating in the air between us. I also heard it vibrating in the air when I watched Cody and his friends playing pickup in the park, sweat making their shirts transparent and heavy, their nipples poking at the fabric. I could hear it too when I thought about the man in the photograph. I wish I still had the Polaroid, but it would have been weird to ask mom if I could look at it again. I wanted to see his smile. I thought I would understand it better now. I carried that man's smile in my head for three days until the smirk became a laugh, a taunt, a howl. One morning as mom got ready to leave for work, I stared at the ceiling, then closed my eyes when she opened my bedroom door to let the dog in. Whenever she left, Kingsley would panic, pressing his face against the window so he could watch a car pull away. It happened five days a week, but every morning he was just as frantic, as if this would be the day she left, never to return. With Kingsley yipping at my ankles, I ventured into Mom's room. 
The picture wasn't on her dresser, and I thought about going through the drawers to find it. The last time I'd done that, though, I'd found her vibrator. <laughs> the discovery had been its own punch. <laughs> Still, I knew that there was a place to go where I could get the answers I would not find at home. In the public library's air-conditioned coolness, I decided I knew better than to ask the wrinkly white woman at the circulation desk where to find the books about being gay. Instead, I slowly walked up and down each aisle, scanning book spines until I found what I was looking for. The first book that stopped me was for parents dealing with gay children. The introduction was worded like it was intended for readers coping with a late-stage cancer diagnosis. I put the book back on the shelf. Wrong side out. Eventually, I gathered five or six books and sat down on the floor with them in my lap. Like any teenage boy trained at reading things he shouldn't be, I looked both ways before opening any, then got up and grabbed a decoy off the shelf. It was a book about the sociology of boys. I kept it open on the second chapter and within reach in case someone I knew came down the aisle and I needed a quick alibi. All the books I found about being gay were also about AIDS. Gay men dying of AIDS like it was a logical sequence of events, a mathematical formula, or a life cycle. Caterpillar, cocoon, butterfly, gay boy, gay man, AIDS. It was certain. Mom's friend got AIDS because he was gay. Because he was gay, he killed himself because he knew he was dying anyway. I read about gay men who were abandoned by their families when they came out. Or worse, who didn't tell anyone that they were gay, even when lesions started to blossom on their skin like awful flowers. Either way, the men in those stories always seemed to die alone. I took some comfort in the fact that Mom knew about her friend's illness. Maybe he had been able to tell the people close to him. Maybe Mom was the kind of person you could tell. When I stood up to put the books back on the shelf, I realized my hands were shaking. I felt like I had made the mistake of asking a fortune teller to look into my future, and now I was being punished for trying to look too far ahead. Walking outside, the blast of hot air was a relief. I passed the park on the way home and the usual boys wore the basketball court, shirts and skins. I looked at their bodies, but only for a moment. I couldn't really focus. In every man's expression, shimmering amid the heat waves, I found myself searching for the face of the man in the photograph, for a hint of that smile, that beautiful, unforgivable smile.
family. And so I'm writing a book about uh, how different places across the country reckon with fulfilled, reckon with their relationship with the history of slavery. And so, in essence, it's a book about public memory and what we remember and what we don't. And so I'm, I'm really interested right now in how uh, multiple people can remember the same event in vastly different ways. And when you are tasked with recounting it, um, how are you, you know, from a practical level, from a process level, how are you using that into consideration that, like, what your memory was, what your mom's memory was, what your grandmother's memory was, and did you present, did you feel like it coming upon yourself to ask them or to present it to them and say, like, this is what I remember, or too bad if you don't feel the same way? Um, how are you thinking about sort of all of them? Uh, so so beautiful. Beautiful. Also, good luck. What a tall order for a book. When everyone's like, I'm working on memoir. Um, uh, the easy uh, part to answer is I did not, uh, I did not interview band members or, or people I did well with. I did research. I, 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 it was actually really hard to confirm, like, what was the weather in May 1990? Was it 90? Because you know? so at first I was like, I think the first summer was like 98, and then I couldn't firmly confirm it, so that's why it's 90 degrees, you know? Um, except for one location in Phoenix, Arizona, I went back to every location basically in the book for different reasons. You know, family reunion, hey, will you come talk to students at the school? Sure, I'd give those games. I mean, they're not, but, but it was like, so I could like walk around high school and, and be in Louisville, Texas for the first time in years, you know, and, and on that trip before, like earlier in the afternoon before I went to the high school, I had time to bridge the car. Um, and I was able to drive and park the car in that apartment complex and sit in front of that apartment. I didn't go in or anything like that, but I sat into the oak tree. You know, I was able to write a comment. I was like, oh, it's still there. That is where, that is what if you looked out of the living room, that was, you know, when the stairs and when you see Cody, Cody becomes more of a character chasing each other and kind of walk. So I, the geography space uh, was, was my research. Because what it became while I was working on a scene, it was like, like that, for example, um, you know, the layout of our apartment. I was like, okay, bedroom, front door, living room, kitchen, my mom's room. And so you see where she is in the space and where I am in the space is actually really important, right? You know, like that's actually, it's like actually like subtextual information, you know, like, and she's, we only say a little bit in the scene. Um, but a lot more is being communicated by her decision to walk away. My decision to wait. She's getting water. She's going to smoke a cigarette. She's looking out the window. Okay. She's gone to her bedroom. She's closed the door. You know, so I would just think about what would be happening in that moment. You know, or you see uh, in a later chapter, I'm at school, and we go to see uh, a play, The Laramie Project, which is very significant for a few reasons. And, and so when I visited the school, it was like, okay, here's the classroom. You're walking down the hallway. What would you be thinking about if there's an all-school assembly and you're surrounded by kids and you're about to go see this play about Matthew Shepard? And you're walking down the hallway. What's on your mind? How, you know? And so just for me, the ethics of, of staying true to a scene came from like, what would you reasonably be doing in a space? So that was important. I didn't interview people because, um, and I'm interested, because, you know, I, I love trickster figures. I always have. Those are the, the characters in folklore and mythology I've always gravitated toward. Um, I think a lot of writers do. Memory is a trickster figure. 
It, it's just like, I'll give you the truth, but will I? You know, you don't have to earn it, you know? And I, I love that. I love that challenge. Um, and so, you know, and, and memory is also a part of how we form our identity. The stories we tell about ourselves, the, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and the people who made ourselves and what we remember, what we forget on purpose or by accident forms our identity. Right? Like that, and it's interesting, like a photograph, it's like layers and layers and layers, like a photograph is an encapsulation of a memory. And you see, I'm trying to get information from my mom, and you see her hesitance. You know, all of that is forming our, both of our identities to one another as individuals in that moment. So I felt um, that it made more sense for me to just own lapses in memory, there are really important scenes, like, like things are going down, and I'll be like, I don't remember what happened next. I wish I did. That's literally a line. I wish we did, you know. And the, But because I feel honoring that uh, maintains the trust with the reader, you know, I'm already asking a lot of you. Like, the dialogue is reconstructed. That's, it's impossible for me to remember exactly what my mom said. You know, there are some things what the pastor says later in the book, that is seared into my brain. I told someone, I was like, I can live and die, and I can still remember what that man said that night. But generally, yeah, we don't, we remember the information. We remember the things that landed for whatever reason, you know? So I know I'm already asking a lot of you, you know, just to trust this conceit. Um, so I felt it was important to own up to things that, that I couldn't remember. And I think that's great. I think that's a part of the work. Yeah. And in you began this book project in 2015. Mm -hmm. uh, in earnest. In earnest. Yeah. In, in many ways, as we talked about, you know, you began uh, much earlier than that. Like 2015 is when you sold it. Right. Um, something that's been interesting for me, in not only a year into the, the process, is what you anticipate the book looking like when you begin, mm -hmm. and then what the book begins to, how it begins to take shape as you are writing, and how it Sometimes you go in directions that you don't anticipate. How were you, how, what is the, the book that we have in our hands as compared to what you were imagining in 2013, 2014, 2015? If you can believe it, it was going to be shorter. <laughs> you know, listen, I am just, you are never, I mean, if this day comes, just know that you know, my site is jumping sharp. Um, you were never just going to get like a 400 page tone from me. <laughs> you know, that I, I think. Uh, straight men, straight white men in particular, for whatever reason, more inclined to write. I just, <laughs> I don't want to do it. I hate having my time wasted. Um, repetition is a really important part of my writing, and it's pretty ironic because I hate repeating myself. I hate I'm like, girl, we know, you know. So if you see me repeating something, it's like very intentional. But generally speaking, I just don't want to waste people's time. Your time is incredibly valuable. Thank you for being here. Like, so there's so many things you could be doing right now. Right? I have to earn that. I really believe that, you know? Um, you can be reading the more than other songs by Isabel Wilkerson. Like. <laughs> so, um, I think all that to say, you know, I was going to write a shorter title book. Uh, it was going to have a different title. It was based on an essay uh, that I published on The Rumpus. And, uh, Roxanne Gay and my best friend Isaac Fitzgerald edited it, um, published in summer 2012. It was called How Men Fight for Their Lives. And that phrase does appear later with deep significance. Um, but uh, it was going to be a book using the memoir form and coming of age to examine what eventually happens is a physical fight does happen. The metaphor ceases to be a metaphor at one point. And a man, the most beautiful man, 
One of the most beautiful men that I've ever had sex with. Uh, had a crisis of masculinity. I think he was in the closet, um, and we started having sex. We were very drunk, New Year's Eve, college, you know. Um, and he panicked, and we were both very drunk. And he started trying to kill me. And he started saying, you're already dead, you're already dead. I mean, it was a whole thing. You can read it. Um, so, you know, that was enough for me. It brought to, that night uh, brought together so many threads that the book was going to focus on, and it still does. Um, race, gender, violence, power, certainly. Um, what does it mean that when men are scared, that they are so dangerous? You know, why is it that more times than not, when men are struggling, they go down in the blaze of glory, and they just take so many of us down with them? That is a consistent pattern. When, when women in particular, when queer people, when we, and this is not great either, but when we self-destruct, we actually self-destruct. Statistically, that's how it plays out. So what was that about? Um, but in writing that, and like the first chapter of the book was always going to be this first chapter, um, you know, my mom is my mom. Like, she is a force, you know? And, um, and, and I remember, you know, when, when Toni Morrison, when she would talk about Song of Solomon, she would talk about Pilot, uh, and that she really struggled with Pilot as a character, because she was like, shut up. <laughs> Just like, you were distracted. Like, Pilot is not supposed to take over the book. But my mom, you know, because of the reality of my life and my relationship to her, and for whatever reason, because how she emerged as a character, it increasingly began to feel like I was skirting misogyny, really, to write a book titled How Men Fight for Their Lives, um, and to cut it off as I was going to um, a few months after the incident with this guy in Phoenix, Arizona. So the book was going to end my senior year of college, that's May 2008. My mom has a heart attack uh, the night before Mother's Day, May 2011. And the book now ends the following fall. Um, and that was, you know, it, so it just, it was like, I was scared to write about that. It was very difficult. We could talk about writing about grief, which is the only thing more difficult than writing about memory, maybe. Um, but it's just like all of these factors were going on, and you know, America was doing what America's been doing, and I, I think factually it made sense to open the book up, and my editor pointed that out emotionally, and it was getting to me. I would write, like, people would be like, what's the title? And I'd say, how men fight for their lives, and I would immediately start, like, kind of shifting, you know, because it just felt dishonest. Men aren't the only ones fighting for their lives. I'm not the only person fighting for my life. Even in that first chapter, it's very clear that my mom's going through some stuff, right? Um, but then just seeing America, you know, over the last three years in particular, and then seeing how all of this is tied up, I, I, I didn't want anyone to be distracted from what I'm presenting on the page by going, yeah, but what about, you know, so that's how it changed. Did you ever anticipate or think about, think about a book like, um, Honoring Through beautiful book, um, which is, I believe, self describes it as a sort of autofiction. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Did you ever think of making this, turning this into a novel, in, in the sense, in, in that it might provide you with a more, I don't know, creative license is the right way to put it, but, but to, rather than having to say, I don't remember mm -hmm. having the, the ethical uh, 
you know, sort of uh, opportunity to to fill in those holes in ways that that you as a writer and you you find engaging, or that you you know, there's so many. And it's interesting because I, as I write this fiction book, um, there are so many moments that surprise you, and that you're like, oh, I could never like imagine this in my head. And there are also moments where you're like, oh, if they just said it like that, like that would hit me a little bit harder. Uh, but you can't actually obviously not make up fake bones and things like that. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious, curious if you ever thought about going in that direction, and if so, why didn't you, or like how did you decide? I definitely want to write a memoir and not something that is based on right. No. Uh, it, I understand. I mean, so the, the, the reason uh, life is long, if we're lucky, you know, you say one thing that you never do. Um, I, I will really think deeply before I write another memoir. It is such a weird person. And it's all hard. I'm not trying to say anything is better. I just think it's just coming from poetry, which is just like you follow the sound, you follow the image, just go for it, you know? And then if you're not, you're not going to You can write a beautiful sentence, and it can be factual and accurate. I could have opened like the, for like the heat wave, you know. I could have opened and like it was a hundred, you know, find a beautiful way to describe this heat wave and be like, oh, it was, it was actually, it actually didn't get above a hundred degrees. Though symbolically, wouldn't that have been beautiful? You can do that. You can write a beautiful sentence that's factually accurate, but emotionally untrue. Well, yeah, that's technically what's happening, but you're lying to yourself. You're lying about what happened, especially when you know my mom's not here. And I really, ooh, I really felt deep, you know. I, I, I was talking to someone earlier, I was like, it's not that I'm exactly superstitious, but I do believe energy cannot be created nor destroyed. So yeah, I do believe the ancestors have a role to play on what's going on here. And uh, no, I wasn't gonna disrespect my mom's <laughs> Not me, not I, <laughs> you know. I wasn't, I wasn't gonna take liberties with that one because I love her. This is my last, you know, maybe I will get to write books about her, but I just felt like I don't know if I'll ever get to write a book about her this way. I gotta do my about her. But also, I just like, at the soul level, I just really had to try to do the truth. And, and so you see, you know, that I'm sure, maybe in reading, you know, there are things where you're like, well, what about, how did you feel, you know, you, you say this about your grandma, if I don't say it, it's very intentional, because those were often moments where I was like, to go any further would just to be opining, I don't, I don't know, you know, I, I'm willing to, there are moments where I open the aperture and kind of look at the culture, especially my grandmother and I, that feels really important, but there are moments where I was like, I can't go any further because now I'm just talking, I'm just theorizing, and this isn't a book about that. So no, um, and, and the reason I didn't want to fictionalize it, um, and you know, um, Ocean Fiong's novel is wonderful. Another good example is um, We the Animals, Justin Torres's. Ooh, boy, and it's, it's, a, it's a slim, you know, um, definitely influenced. Like, look at what he accomplished with this like fun story. Someone called it the Dark Jewel. I was like, I'm gonna write a Dark Jewel in the book. Um, I just feel the circumstances, the facts of my life are so at times like a heart attack the night before Mother's Day. Of, of this man, like we're having sex, and 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 we're wrestling on the floor, and it's it's so already so dramatic and surreal and he's crying 
and saying, you're already dead, you're already dead. And then he's laughing, you're already dead, you're already dead. And then he's crying again, I'm so evil, I'm so evil. And I'm saying, no, you're not. Like, that happened. And I just felt that if people, if I invited fiction into it, people would be like, okay, girl, let's dial it back. Like, good luck to anyone trying to write a novel about the American politics. A novel about things that literally just happened in the last 24 hours. Right? You know what I mean? Like, even, you know, Representative Elijah, Cup, you're just like, damn, is everything a metaphor? What is, it's just, it's just, I just, I can already feel, you know, if I'm blessed to have grandchildren or my friends have grandchildren and I become Auntie Saeed, um, I can already feel years of now trying to explain this moment to young people who didn't live to see it and they're going to look at us like, please. There's no way, you know? Um, so I just felt that way. I felt like memoir was like my only hope for getting you to understand. And, and, and of course, the fact that I'm here, um, as, you, as you so beautifully explained, you know, and, and, and what I survived, I think it's all in relationship. You know, you kind of go, he survived that, and he's like this, you know? And, and that's part of the power of the book. And I didn't want, I didn't want it to be lessened because people thought I was taking liberties. Part of what we were, something we were talking about earlier, uh, was the, it was a little bit different, but the pressure that um, black writers and writers of color are, and sometimes, and artists, artists from historically marginalized groups generally, the pressure of them can feel to turn any piece of art that you create into something that like does all the work, that right. like abolishes the prisons, that like creates gender equity, that everybody that like, that's everybody free, that's like deeply like artistically invigorating, but also like emancipatory text. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and part of the, and obviously, I think the sort of example of this in, in the sort of um, uh, controversy around was like a king royalty, right? And the way the king royalty became a single so much bigger. Was in the way that like people when they get imputed uh, and imposed a lot of uh, expectation onto a book that actually had a very specific intention. And so I'm wondering for you, uh, writing with the identity that you carry as a black man, a gay man in the South, uh, along with many other facets of your identity, did you ever feel that you were, did you ever feel that weight? Did you ever feel like you were carrying? Did you reject it outright? And how how did that, I can imagine a scenario in which the fear of your story being the gay black man story from the South, um, for some writers that might become really paralyzing and might inform how they write the book. Um, and I'm just curious how you navigate that. Yeah. Be ready. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, for until recently, I was working in Buzz Fingers. I was there for six years. And I was an LGBT editor, I thought about this a lot. And then I got promotion and I became a culture editor. So I saw the, the aperture open even more. And so I think I saw people navigating this, and I, I saw how people think they want that. Because there is briefly, if you become like the one for whatever, um, there is, you know, a lot of um, privileges attached to it. 
monetary attention. You, you can, you know, hey, well done, good spend. Um, but then I would see consistently how quickly people will bubble up and And then also, I just never had that. I, 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 that, is, that doesn't really sync with my personality. I just, I, you know, you see in the book, I'm always, there's always another part of myself that I would like to invite into this space. I, I, I don't think I cursed tonight, and like, wow, what a moment. <laughs> you know, like, I haven't talked about, like, the fact that, like, Paul Newman is, like, the hottest ghost <laughs> that we've ever been bestowed upon. And that's still a very diplomatic phrasing of what I would like to say. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and that's just like, I just, you know, I just always felt like, no, but what about this other thing? So I don't think I have, it's not a part of my worldview. And I just saw it pragmatically all the, it would become news stories. I'd be like, well, girl, here you go. You know, Ellen said she wanted it, so go ahead and write it. You know, to some writer, like, go write about it. Go write about it. You know, hate to, hate to see it. Um, yeah, so I don't, yeah. And then also, you know, I'm a Sagittarius, you know, we're always like moving on. You know, people think like the, the, the thing with Sagittarius is like that just travel, it's physical travel. And it is, I do like to travel. It's also travel across ideas. We tend to change careers. It's just it's this like the journey, and we like it and we appreciate it. Transformation. You see it on the book, it's like how many lives society live. Um, so that's part of it. And then, like, I, think, I don't know, I think readers, generous readers, everybody's not going to be a generous reader, and that's fine. Um, but generous readers, I think, are aware that, like, well, Sai also writes poems. And he'll write an essay or a newsletter. He certainly tweets. Like, there are all these other. Because, yeah, I can't. There's no way. It would be a terrible, boring, stodgy book if, if every sentence I stopped to try to couch all the nuance. It just would. You know, and I, I try now and then, but it's just I can't do that for every sentence. I'm still an artist. I'm still trying to create something that is beautiful. I want my work to be beautiful. I want, you know, like, I'm going to write gowns and pray to the screws because I want my work to feel like you're reading a poem or a chapter by me, and I want it to feel like an avant-garde gown walking down you know, a runway. I want you to summon Alexander Queen. I want the Louisiana darling. I want all of it, you know. And, and I'm not going to sacrifice that because of the office. Um, so yeah, I feel like there are other ways to do that. Um, but also that's just, you know, that's not... People are messy. We are messy. And our messiness is important. It's valid. It's human. It's a part of our freedom. And I have certainly tried, if you see it in different parts of the book, tried to be perfect, tried to be the golden boy, and buckled under the weight of it. It becomes a, a horrible burden. I think we see people in real time, I think we know people, hmm? who are just, who just, you, you get to a point where you feel like if you're not perfect all the time to whatever the imagined audience in your head is, the world is kind of falling, and you just wear yourself out, you know, and, and, and people, can't even communicate with you because the moment they start talking, you're trying to politic in your head. And I just think that's an exhausting way to live. And it's sort of an angel, right? Is she a relative of us? She is. No, she's here. Shout out to her mom. Do you, were you scared putting some of this stuff in, knowing your family would read it? And couching that question is, Differently, if your mother was alive. I definitely would have written differently if my mom was alive. Um, I don't know how, but I, I don't know. I didn't 
knowing that she was. So I was really trying to do right by a lot of people. And readers. I, my grandmother is not the grandmother from Soul Food. She hates cooking, first of all. She hates cooking. She always has. Um, it's the only thing that if you bring it up, she'll actually get passionate and start talking a lot about. Um, she is not a storyteller. She's very terse. You would think she was shy, but she isn't. She's just firm. And she's. And I think always having a conversation with the Lord. And why are you here? <laughs> you know, she's minding her own business. And so, yeah, I was also aware of, like, I didn't want, I wanted to tell the truth. I wanted to have compassionate nuance in terms of my actual relationship with her. But I also felt it was important to do work so that strangers, I mean, think of the thought bubbles that usually appear above people's head when you say, like, black gay boy, black single mother, you know, Christian black grandmother, and, you know, like, and I just felt it was really important for me to do that work for everyone involved, not to get distracted, I guess, from me, um, but from, from what I was really trying to do. Um, and, and, there, and that's, again, another example of why I think it's just very difficult uh, to, to write a memoir, because there are so many ways, even when you can get nine things right, and then the one thing you kind of, uh, is, might be the thing that takes over. Um, so I wrote a book very slow, I think, for that reason. Can you stop for questions? Hi. Please feel free. Hi, Danielle. Hello. <laughs> and I just asked that you wait for the microphone, because decided to do was that because that is so complicated 
Um, and I had to know my story very well, right? And that, as I mentioned, all the other things I was trying to do well, I tried to focus, and I think the opening chapter is a good example of this. I didn't really want to opine about my mom's homophobia. She had it. She wasn't good. You see what becomes. She's not good at talking about gay stuff. You see, we have a pretty good dynamic relationship. But whenever gayness comes up, it just gets really quiet all the time for years. Um, and so I decided to focus on what I knew and trust that. And I, you know, was like, well, listen, you know, if she grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and one of her first friends was gay and ended up being HIV positive during the worst, it's still ongoing, right, it's an HIV AIDS crisis, especially for black men, but the worst years of the HIV AIDS crisis, she saw that in real time, and she begins to have an inkling that her son might be gay too. Silence is often our response to fear with loved ones. You know, and this has happened. You know, Matthew Shepard figures into the book, and I've met moms, you know, this week, who've been like, "Oh, my son is gay too," and I think about Matthew Shepard, and I just freeze up. I'm just so scared, and I don't. I love him, and it's fine, but I'm so scared. I'm so scared, you know. And so, wow, and and that to me seems like a terrain that I could mine and really work with more so than these bigger, you know, CNN kind of level uh, conversations. Um, and, and frankly, I think it's more interesting. What does it mean when you love someone and, and their identity is not actually the problem, but what their identity out in America and how scary that is, that fear becoming the problem. Like that's, I don't know, I think, I, I think it's more complicated and interesting for me. Yeah, thank you for the question. Don't be shy. <laughs> um, is there anything that you're reading or watching or listening to lately that really speaks to you that mm -hmm. you would recommend? I mean, that's the one of my I've been doing it all the time. You know, if you've read it, you get it. You're just, it's just like. <laughs> it's the single best book that I believe has been written in the last 20 years. I just, I'm willing to. He, she played it all. I just, it's, just, it's just tremendous. Everything we're going through right now, it, it makes sense. She refers to Jim Crow as a caste system. She refers to black people moving from the South to the North as migrants, as refugees. She draws comparisons to how far black people traveled and how similar that is to Irish people escaping. You know, the, the, these international... The, Oh my gosh, it just, and as someone with a grandma who is not a storyteller and whose family is frankly in some ways um, oppressed by our self-imposed silences, it was just, my heart is bigger and my, my brain is more compassionate for having read a book that helped me locate my history and my family's history in our bigger story, you know, it's just, and it's well written too. Um, it's, it's beautiful. Um, also, I guess uh, Trigger Mirror by Gia Tolentino is just absolutely wonderful. Um, and uh, other media. Hmm, Steven Universe is great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I really like the new Dark Crystal on Netflix. It was really fun. It's all about the Trump administration. It's literally called Dark Crystal Age of the Resistance. I was like, oh, okay. Like, it's but it's literally, it's like, I think it's like a, a show that's like, let's help kids understand what it means to like come together. To, to fight oppression when it's like we've got to do this. You know, we've got to set aside our differences and focus 
That's useful. Um, and then the podcast, I love the podcast moment, Death, Sex, and Money. Um, I did that, I did an interview with it recently, and it's in a sale, and it's good. It's a podcast about death, sex, and money, these important things uh, uh, that we don't talk about. Yeah. Thank you. Ooh, look at that. You got us warmed up, girl. Both of you. Hi, thanks for being here. Um, I'm curious, I know you mentioned that you wrote this most recent book really slowly, and I also know that you were a poet before you were a memoirist, so I'd love to know a little bit about how you made that transition, and if slowness was a part of, like, because I'm also kind of a similar transition, I started writing poetry and I'm writing prose, and I think it's like there's a retraining of the brain that has to happen, because poetry is much more So that was a big thing. Um, I, I write poems like I write, like I have a, uh, usually the first line or the title in mind for several days or years. Um, and then I write the first line, it's like music. Like, so just like, write the first line, write the second line, off to him. I draw a dash, I write the first line again. Second line. Maybe I get to the third line. And then I did it, and so that's how I write poetry. And that's why my poems surprise me. When people are like, the end of that poem, I'm like, well, girl, I didn't know what was going that way. <laughs> you know, like, especially praying to Bruce, like, there is true suspense, you know, and it's birthed out of, like, I get to the end of the poem and I go, oh, no, what happens next? You know, and I would start over. It was a great way to just keep writing, because with poetry, you keep having to start over. It's really hard. Poetry, like, I tried. I was like, I would write the first chapter over and over. And then start to get to the second chapter and start writing the first chapter. It was awful. I just thought I just couldn't do that pragmatically. Um, and I had to trust my editor that he would give me opportunities, but also that he was smart and that he would catch things for me and give me those needed opportunities to go back and refine the language. And he's a good line editor. A lot of editors aren't anymore. That is kind of a daily practice. Um, now, often, I don't know if I'm able to talk um, but often, you know, editors will just like read the book and uh, take four months to go all the way through it and send you back this like letter that's like nine pages long. And then you just go back and keep working. Like, good luck. I was like, no, 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 boy, I'm texting you. You know, I'm going to email you a couple of paragraphs and you're going to tell me if I'm going the right way. Like, I needed a, a hands on because I think that applies. Like, this paragraph is actually important. You know, like nailing the description of my mother in that paragraph, it does so much work. Because I don't describe her really anymore after that. You know, and so I had to get it right. So I can sleep at night. Um, so yeah, it's an adjustment. But I don't know, that thoughtfulness, writing slowly, um, you know, 
I, I was hoping when I sold the book in 2015 that 2019 would shake out a little differently on the national level. Um, but slowly working on the book while all of this has been unfolding, the wife might go, Trump, or huh? You, there are touches, you know, that certainly I hope resonate with what's going on now. And, and when you see, you know, Trump, for example, had a horrible father, a very, very, very mean father. Um, and we're seeing perhaps what that shakes out of, you know? Like, I hope when you read the book, you see what we inherit from our parents and are trying to figure out. And that thought almost came from just taking this away along. Can I think? So it's the blue dress 
is is a silk train, is a river, is water trickles. It just is, and it just keeps changing and keeps changing. And I just find, and again, I wrote it in that like way, and I teach it in that way. Um, I find it helpful to teach because it frees young people up, because the poem is written from the perspective of a kid. And you know, if you talk to like a little kid, like, what is this? It's a truck, and the truck is from Mars. And if you look at it, look away, because if you look at it wrong, it'll blow you up. You know, they, they just, you're just like, okay, right. wow, you know? And I just, I think we just need to go, wow, and let them keep going. And that is the beginning of something beautiful and healthy for them. And so I like to teach that poem and then let them like pick an object. The water bottle is, it's this, it's this and just, and there's no wrong answers and just, keep going, and I try to get them to go as long as they can, actually, before they stop themselves. I'm like, we can do the stop yourself later. But that, that's an exercise, because someone was mentioning the emotion. And just, it's, it's, to get good at poetry, you have to define and, and refine that impulse to hear the value in the, huh, what's that? I'll pursue it. And that is a very different impulse than we typically cultivate, you know? Um, if I try to answer your question that way, just like good luck, you know. Um, but I think it's good for kids, especially us. Yeah. Um, following that, I was going to be talking about the English. Um, I'm going to be talking about the English. And shout out to PG. And I, this one, I was going to be talking about the English. And I love that one. Liberating and 
recording my TV to the back. Like in the back of my mind, right? My TV's coming in, like, oh yeah, back of my mind, my people were just killing each other, you know, and, and they're saying this about themselves, right? They are black. And nobody ever thought of, thought of this mantle in a sort of like mindset of oppression, which is like having the intellectual toolkit, right? Like, so, like, what does it mean to like think black on black crime is an issue, but nobody ever told you that, like, per the statistics in the Bureau of Justice, like, 84% of white people are killed by the white people. Nobody ever said on the right side. Right. Like, right. Like, why is that? Well, we know why that is, because we mentioned like a sort of perpetuation of the media narrative. But like so much of what I wanted to do was like give my students tools with which to uh, understand how to be able to name the lies that this country was telling them about themselves. That's also what we lost. It's a lot. And so that's all to say, like, praise on today is that I wanted to provide moments in which you like you don't have to talk about like I wanted to provide space where you talk about all the Systemic trauma, interpersonal trauma, the things you want in your life, but also like there's a lot to celebrate in this world, right? Like some of them write praise songs to their mom, some of them write praise songs to their best friend, some of them write praise songs to hot Cheetos. Like you know, it was just and I think that that's so important to provide young people with that space to name the things that bring them joy and celebration and, and laughter amid this sort of larger. Um, project of and small of like oppression that they are uh, beginning to like understand to exist in their um, their worlds. Mm. Mm. Um hi. Um, I have a question for Saeed and um, in addition to Pauline Skills and the uh, big flag rugby players that you post your ID stories. Um, what are some other beautiful men that you like what a moment! <laughs> How much time do you have? Wow! If you have not seen Saeed's Instagram stories, oh yeah, there's a range. Yeah, no, you'll go and it's like my, they're thirst, they're number, they're. I, my favorite thing is like when straight guys are like, you might have said different people. They're like, yeah, I was sitting at a bar and I was on the plane, and then the person next to me, I was looking at your Instagram stories and. Because you know beauty, we deserve. <laughs> and you know these. What I think is so interesting about like uh, is that they work so hard, and like it's as hard as I work on my craft. So you know. Um, but but also because I think it's an, it's important to let people know that like I, I think hopefully you understand that I'm pretty smart and I'm a pretty good writer and a person of worth as is Clint. Um, and I also have desire. And I also get horny sometimes. And I also think boys are cute and I get nervous. And you know, and like that is another way of helping people feel less alone in the world, right? Um, and if we pretend that's not the case, then that's just another silence. And I just wanna, you know, and it's fun. Um, Paul Newman really was wonderful and just, you know, acted right. That's the thing about Paul Newman. I keep waiting. I'm like, are they gonna cancel this ghost? No. <laughs> I can, I can, every time I learn another anecdote, it's like him just saying something really wonderful and ahead of his time. Uh, he's great. Jason Momoa. Ooh, what a man. <laughs> I just like really like. Can you pick me up? Pick <laughs> me up. Of course, I have to show. Look at me. Look at me. I'm like everything's changed. Um, Outlander. You know. Wow. Sam Hewen. I got to interview him in person, and, and it, it, it's 
funny, like I, I hosted a morning show for BuzzFeed for a couple of years and um, got to meet these celebrities. And um, it is really interesting to see what it is. Like Sam Hewitt, there is a kind of, and the Hemsworth brothers have this as well, but I guess. Um, this kind of, God, and uh, Idris has it. Um, um, the, the lead actor from Moonlight, I think his name is escaping me at the moment. Uh, Trevon. Trevon, yes. Yeah, Trevante Rhodes. This kind of godlike, chiseled. They're very, they're very quiet, actually. I've noticed in all of them, and actually, weirdly, the, I use that description in the book. There's like men who are very quiet and know they're handsome, and know you will come to them. Mm. <laughs> yes, we will. <laughs> so that's something. But also, I don't know. I think you know, like um, I, I've been trying to like open the aperture and think about different things that are also really hot too. You know, like Denise Smith is so themselves, um, themselves, you know, those pronouns. And I think that's important too. And it's, again, smart and messy. And I, I don't know, I think that is just really, really hot and overwhelming. Um, Janet Mock, I just think is one of the most beautiful people I've ever seen on this earth. And I've seen it, like, got to hang out with her a few times when we were both living in New York. And I remember once it was like, hot as hell. And she wrote one of those damn city bikes for like for lunch, which like I've never done, and I would just would just keep riding right past you if I saw you. And she showed up, and she just like the sweat just like like that kind of Rihanna moment, you know? I was like, damn, just so beautiful. Um, yeah, Angela Bassett, woo, woo. But yeah, I think you know at the end of the day, Jason Momoa, and I don't know, I don't know if he acts right. He's he's a little wild, so you know, don't cancel me, you know, or anything. I'm, I don't know, Jason. Um, but yeah, and then the one other, the thing about, um, <laughs> no, I was talking just because I was talking about him earlier, but Noah Centineo, I'm, so I'm interested in why, why we think people are hot. And the thing about Noah Centineo, here's my theory. Do you know, who, raise your hand if you know who Noah Centineo is. Okay, all right, ooh, wow, this is a learning moment. Okay, so he's about to blow up. He's on the Netflix, um, To All the Boys I've Loved Before. That was kind of his, yeah. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Because, and I've interviewed him in person, and it's interesting, again, when you see someone in person, you see, and Mark Ruffalo, and people compare them a lot. And the thing it is, so that's interesting. Um, um, but, and, and, and he admitted he studied Mark Ruffalo when he was younger. Um, but the thing about him is that there's this thing that certain men in Hollywood have. I think Shawn Mendes, the people gravitate toward it as well, where they remind you of one of your cousins. <laughs> one of your younger cousins. And you're like, boy, I remember watching you learn how to walk. I remember watching you lose your, you know, when they were just so young and juvenile, and then you go off to college, or you grow up, and you come back, and all of a sudden, they're taller than you, and you're like, ah! you know, and that weirdness, where you're like trying to figure out that this is very inappropriate. You are not supposed to be handsome. Go sit or pull up your pants, you know, like that. You know, like, notice when everyone realized, oh, that Noah Centineo, that like, you know, that's interesting. Yeah, so I think we, so much is actually revealed when we talk about why we're attracted to people. And I just think it's fun and naughty. <laughs> one last thing, one last thing. Um, one last thing. Um, Eartha Kitt was rumored to have had, just rumored, I, don't, I wasn't there, but she was rumored to have had a threesome with Marlon Brando and Paul Newman. And Paul Newman. <laughs> And when she was asked what she thought about white men, she said, D. 
Delish. <laughs> Incredible. Okay, I'll stop. I'll stop. Welcome to Pratt Library After Dark. <laughs> podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.